You may be seated. Our New Testament lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, the entire chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. And then our gospel lesson and sermon text for today comes from Luke's gospel, chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. Let me just remind you, this is God's word to us, and it's given to us because he loves us. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless the reading and now the preaching of your word that you would open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear, open our hearts and minds to understand what it is that you would have to say to us because we need to hear your voice, the voice of love. We need to hear your voice above all others and we pray that we would, you would do that, you would speak to us and we would listen. 
and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any Wes Anderson movie lovers in the house? Yeah, I see some hands out there. Also, you're probably like, oh my goodness, two weeks in a row with a movie as the opening illustration? Well, I could give you Alabama football illustrations or hockey illustrations, but I figure I'll go with movie and TV because that's pretty much the only other things I'm interested in. Anyway, what's your favorite Wes Anderson movie? Uh, let, me, let me hear some. Bottle Rocket, I heard that. What else? Rushmore. Don't be shy. <laughs> yes. Fantastic Mr. Fox. That is my, uh, my children's favorite, Wes Anderson. Fantastic Mr. Fox, for sure. I would have said previously that my favorite Wes Anderson movies, because I can't split the tie, was between Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. But I might have to say that The French Dispatch is my new favorite Wes Anderson movie, which after a very long delay because of the pandemic, finally came to theaters this past fall. And one of the characters in the movie, Roebuck Wright, played by the very excellent actor Jeffrey Wright, when he's asked in the part of the story why he was thrown into the ennui jail, he responded this way, people may or may not be threatened by your anger, your hatred, your pride, but love the wrong way and you will find yourself in great jeopardy. Last week, we looked at this time that Jesus went to worship on a Lord's Day uh, in his hometown, and he read this passage from the prophet Isaiah 61. I'll read it for you again. It was in verses 18 and 19, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he goes on to say, as we start our passage today, that today, now, this good news has begun. This is the beginning of the year of the Lord's favor. This is the return to Jubilee and the restoration of all that was broken. This process, this moment has begun because the anointed one, which just means the Christ, has come. And this is indeed good news. We talked about that last week. And at first, the folks from Jesus' hometown, who he's been going to church with his entire life, receive it just as that. Good news. They speak well of Jesus. They marvel at the gracious words coming from Jesus' mouth. And they can't believe that this is the same kid who grew up the son of Joseph, the carpenter. So what happens between being super jazzed about what Jesus is saying and then trying to throw him off a cliff? How did we go from a feel-good day at church that we can be excited about to a murderous mob in what feels like 60 seconds or less. Well, do you remember from last week why the prophet Isaiah is renouncing, or sorry, referencing the year of the Lord's favor, also known as the year of Jubilee, that was mandated to the people of God back in Leviticus 25, that before they took possession of the promised land after their 
exodus from slavery in Egypt. Why is Isaiah the prophet referencing that? Because Isaiah's audience at the time is the people of God who find themselves in exile, removed from the promised land. And what was one of the reasons the people of God find themselves in judgment via the exile from the promised land? Because they failed to keep the year of Jubilee. They failed to keep the year of the Lord's favor. They failed to honor God's law to never keep people enslaved in poverty ever again. They were to take great care of the poor, the marginalized, the failures of society, and they did not. So you fast forward to Jesus' day. This day, he's in his hometown synagogue after his Neighbor's initial excitement about what Jesus is saying, he reminds them of this. He reminds them of why Isaiah included these words in his prophetic call to repentance. He reminds them of how, like, how the people treated Isaiah, that whenever the people of God reject his prophets, God sends his prophets elsewhere. Like how in the time of the prophet Elisha. He gives these examples. In the time of the prophet Elisha, during a great famine, there were many widows in the promised land, but God sent Elijah to the widow Zarephath in Sidon. Or like how in the time of the prophet Elisha, there were many lepers in the promised land, but God sent Elisha to none of them, but to Naaman, the Syrian. So what does Zarephath and Naaman have in common? They're Gentiles. And why does this matter? Why is that a big deal? Because people may or may not be threatened by your anger, your hatred, your pride. But love the wrong way, and you will find yourself in great jeopardy. Jesus reminds the people of how, generally speaking, how people respond to the critical prophetic message of the prophets. They generally try to kill them, especially when the prophets talk about loving all the wrong people, like a failure to love the bottom dwellers of society who cannot reciprocate adding value to me if I add value to them, widows, orphans, barren women who can't bear children, the poor, the sick, the homeless. And especially a failure to love those who do not belong, like dirty, unclean outsiders like the Gentiles, the foreigner, the stranger. And I think if you read the Gospels, you will routinely encounter that perhaps the thing that got Jesus into the most trouble, he loved the wrong people. And he got it from every direction. One side criticized him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. That same side turns around and judged him for dining with the Pharisees and the lawyers. Jesus ate with lepers. He received a woman with a poor reputation at a men's dinner banquet. Jesus even invited himself into a, quote, sinner's home. One time, outside of a Samaritan town, even despite the tender love and care that Jesus had shown to Samaritans, even though Jesus... And one of his most powerful parables uses a Samaritan 
as the exemplar of what God's love is like, even, even despite all that, outside of Samaritan town, they reject him and they bar him from coming. Why? Because he still loves their enemies too much. The people who hate them, Jesus still loves them. This is the religious genius and ultimate scandal that gets Jesus killed. He doesn't reject anybody. He eats and shares fellowship with everybody. He refuses all debt codes, purity codes, religious quarantines, and every other practice that sought to determine who belongs and who doesn't belong. In short, every starting point of just about every historic religion. He refuses to divide the world between the pure and the impure. Or another way, he refuses to divide the world into who deserves to be loved and who doesn't deserve to be loved. And for that, because Jesus doesn't show favoritism for any one tribe, one group, one race, one political or religious persuasion, people want to throw him off a cliff. Or, Nail him to a cross. Because the human ego, not freed by coming to realize that he has been loved by the very one who is supposed to hate him and who he is supposed to fear, will always look to find someone else to blame and for someone else to export onto the misery we experience due to brokenness and sin. It's always other people's fault. The other, they are unworthy. They are the sinners. And our mission is to make sure that we stay away from them. And if there are ever those others in our midst, it's our job to expel them from our midst, like throw them off a cliff. You see, people are shocked and appalled by Jesus because he's never upset with the people they think he should be upset with. He's never upset with the sinners. The only time Jesus is upset with anybody is the people who don't think they are sinners. They get angry with Jesus because Jesus' radical inclusiveness and refusal to reject the other, he shows us that there is no place to expel sin or evil because we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Jesus' hometown gets mad at him Because he says they are just as much to blame for why they aren't experiencing the year of the Lord's favor as anybody else. Our tendency to blame and hate the other for why we aren't experiencing God's favor is exposed for all its inadequacy as a solution for our pain and brokenness Once we realize that the very one that we have been taught to fear, the God of the entire universe, is in fact the absolute goodness and love that surrounds us, accepts us, and abides with us. Our God loves all the wrong people, including us. And friends, that is good news for everyone. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.
Let's respond to God's word by confessing our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I ask you, brothers and sisters, in whom do you trust? 